This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 8, Episode 13, Pandemic Baby Bust Continues the Downward Trend of U.S. Population Decline. In conversation with Professor Philip Levine of Wellesley College. With the 2020 COVID lockdowns forcing everyone to work from home, we expected to see an uptick in the U.S. birth rate. But the numbers are headed in the opposite direction, with about 400,000 fewer births recorded in the United States during 2020. Even before the pandemic, the U.S. birth rate through 2019 was declining. But the pandemic only seems to have accelerated that trend. Our guest today is Professor Philip Levine, the Catherine Coleman and A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Economics at Wellesley College. He's been studying the economic data and has tracked a correlation between the unemployment rate and the birth rate. For each 1% increase in unemployment, there's a corresponding 1% drop in the birth rate. The precipitous rise of unemployment in the early months of the pandemic, March, April, and May of 2020, seems to have translated into fewer births by the end of 2020. Economic uncertainty, a weak U.S. social safety net, housing scarcity, and declining household formation all played a role in the 2020 baby bust. But what what other factors were at play? With us today to explore why the U.S. birth rate is in decline is Philip Levine, who joins us from Newton, Massachusetts. Hello, Phil. How are you? And welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. So, Phil, why don't we begin with a brief biography, and please tell our listeners about your work and your background. Sure. So, I, uh, I have a, I've been a, I'm a professor of economics at Wellesley College. I've been there for 30 years now. Before that, I received my Ph.D. at Princeton University and my undergraduate degree from Cornell. I'm also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I've been studying issues related to social policy in the United States really for my entire career. Fertility is one of those things that I spent a lot of time thinking about, and that's obviously related to the research that we're talking about today. Very impressive. Very, very accomplished record. Again, Phil, thank you for joining us and taking time from your, your busy schedule and away from your students to, to join us and to talk to my listeners. So let's jump right into your research and the links between unemployment and the birth rate. And so when did you first begin to see this link and the trend? Well, you know, we started this research actually in response to sort of conventional wisdom that went in the other direction. When the pandemic hit, the Carney and I, who were, you know, Melissa and I do a lot of work together, started receiving phone calls from the media asking us what we thought about the coming baby boom. Based on the research that we've done over the years, that led us to, you know, we had to, you know, we had to step back and say, wait, what are you talking about? And then we heard the theory about how 
people would get bored watching Netflix, and before you know it, there is going to be a baby boom, just like there is after Blizzard. It turns out that it's not obvious that there are baby booms after blizzards anyways, but regardless, it's not exactly like what we're going through right now with the blizzard. If it is, it's a doozy. <laughs> so our initial instinct was to think that like that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is births are going to fall. Economic contractions generally are, are not good for fertility. People just don't have the money. It's not a good time to have a kid. And we knew that based on our past research, but we wanted to document it a little bit more carefully. And, you know, basically at that point, we were in, let's say, April of 2020, and the recession was massive. You know, millions of people had lost their jobs. The unemployment rate was skyrocketing. And so we wanted to get a sense of, you know, based on past experience, what happens when there's a, a massive recession. Thankfully, we don't get too many massive recessions, but we did just go through one not all that long ago. So we used data from the Great Recession, and we compared states that experience the recession was nationwide obviously but like some states it was worse than other states so we wanted to say well in the states where it was worse what happened to the birth rate did it fall by more did it fall by less what happened and it was that analysis that led us to this estimate that a one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate from like you know eight percent to nine percent or whatever would lead to a one percent reduction in birth that also happens to be consistent with a lot of other past research and the impact of of cyclical fluctuations on, on fertility rates. So we were, were happy with that. That seems reasonable to us. And that was sort of one of the foundations on, on which we were expecting birth to fall in the aftermath of COVID. It is, though, not the only reason why we thought it. Mm-hmm. birth would fall. Certainly the, the recession that we were in and continue to be in, we're expecting to have a, a negative effect on birth. But there's a lot of other stuff that's going on right now, which one might also expect would reduce birth. So for instance, we're not just in a recession, we're in a pandemic. People are dying, people are getting sick. Thankfully, not as much now. We seem to be uh, hopefully turning the corner, potentially just have turned the corner. But, you know, we had more than a year of bad times. What happens when there's a major public health crisis? Thankfully, we have fewer of those, but we have had those in, in the history of the United States. And we also went back and looked at data from Spanish flu in 1918. And we see pretty strong evidence that during that period as well, that the pandemic caused fewer births. Note that this is, it was not a recession in 1918. We were in war in 1918. Right. You know, the war machine, for whatever good and bad it brings about, it's good for the economy. Mm-hmm. There was no recession then. So any effects you see on births were likely to be coming from the pandemic and, and the sickness and the illness and death, not from the recession. Phil, uh, may- and if we look at- Phil can I just oh, jump in and, and pose a question here? Why is it so important in the field of economics to track population growth and fertility rates? Maybe that's an obvious question, but let me just pose it anyway. Why do economists feel that it's so important to track projected population growth, fertility rates, and how does that, how does that impact the subject of economics? and economic planning and economic policymaking. I mean, it matters a lot. I mean, basically, you know, population, that's where workers come from. Workers contribute to the economy. Population growth represents more workers. That represents greater GDP. So, for instance, if you've been paying attention to the discussions about the recently proposed, Biden's recent, uh, recently proposed budget for next year, there have been conversations taking place about GDP forecasts, which aside from GDP forecasts in the next couple of years, that are higher than normal, 
because of all the spending that we're doing and to help overcome the recession and the recovery from the recession. In the long term, those budgets have pretty low assumptions about GDP growth. And one of the contributing factors for why that is, is population growth is expected to be slower in the coming years. Mm-hmm. And that matters. I mean, basically, lower levels of GDP. So, for instance, we've got, you know, trillions of dollars worth of debt as a country. The faster GDP grows, the easier it is to pay that off. So there's, there's you know, sort of obvious linkages between how many people we have, how many workers we have, economic activity, and people's well-being. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's uh, as I said, may, it, it's it's an obvious question. But on the other hand, I'm I'm glad that we I'm glad that you answered it because it's you know it's it's important to remember that the number of workers that we have, the number of taxpayers that we have, the number of people who are gainfully employed and generating wealth is is all the basis of our the U.S. economy and really for any country's economy, I guess. Sure. I, you, you raised the hinted at this notion of uh, social insurance and the social security system, which is another significant problem. And basically, we have a system that more current retirees are, receive their benefits based on taxes paid in by current workers. Fewer current workers means it's a lot harder to pay off those benefits. And the well-being of really a very large number of elderly households depend on that money. And And of course, this is not only a problem in the United States. It's a problem throughout the developed world, in particular in Japan, I was reading that Japan has the highest proportion of people over 65. I think it's something like 28, almost 29% of the population is over 65, is retired, therefore has greater claims on the social security system, retirement benefits, health care benefits, etc. So again, to your point, I guess every economy needs to have a large, youthful working force that is out there contributing to the social security system, creating the wealth and generating and expanding GDP. I, I, so I'll, I'll support your initial position that this is a global, certainly a developed world, high income country, a universal phenomenon, basically all, all, I would say, I'm trying to think if there are any countries that stand opposite to that, but I don't think it's true. I think pretty much, in, certainly at least in most, developed countries, fertility is low. As a matter of fact, in the United States, we are lagging behind in terms of the decline. So most other developed countries started experiencing significant declines in birth rates in the 1980s. You know, we're in that position now and have been really, you know, the conversation started with with pandemic-related births. But in reality, the, the bigger issue that we face is that, you know, the birth rate in the United States has been falling since 2007. And what... So, you know, so by 2007, 2007, we were sort of at, roughly speaking, replacement level of fertility. So, rough, you know, about 2.1, which is generally considered to be 2.1 births per woman. Right. Other developed countries fell considerably below that years ago. That, like I said, in the, starting in the 1980s. We are moving into that position of falling considerably below replacement fertility, but we're just really getting there now. And, for instance, uh, fertility... Is, in the context of any society, is a is a complicated question. As an economist, what are some of the reasons for declining fertility in the United States, in your opinion? You know, it's a, it's a complicated question. I think that, with I'll be honest, without definitive answers, there certainly are a lot of potential explanations. I think it's not obvious to what extent, even if they make sense, that they seem like they're supported by the data. For instance, just as a, as a broader conceptual issue, and one might think that it's very difficult 
to specify this decline as being somehow related to something about the United States, like something about what we do in this country. And the reason why there's difficulties in you know attributing the problems to us is that it's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if it's happening everywhere, it seems like it's unlikely to be specific to us. But there's lots of arguments that people use, again, that make perfect sense but perhaps are not really supported by the data. So we live in a country where maintaining work-family balance is very difficult. And there's no question that that is a true fact, as my thesis advisor used to say. (laughs) It's a true fact. (laughs) As opposed to a faked fact. Yeah, well, there's certainly lots of those out there these days. And, you know, there's a lot of policy proposals out there these days about ways to to improve work-family balance, parental leave, child care subsidies, you know, whatever, go through the list. I want to preface this remark by saying nothing that I'm going to say after that has after this has anything to do with the validity and the value of any of those sorts of policies. But in terms of the specific issue of do they increase birth rates, not obvious that they do. So if we look, for instance, in the United States, over you know in locations where childcare costs have risen by more than other places, it does not seem like that has much of an impact on fertility. Same is true for housing prices, contraceptive access. Not to say that any of these sorts of things not about the benefits of policies that address any of these sorts of things in general, but in terms of the specific question of do they uh, increase or affect national fertility rates, not so obvious that they do. So let's come back to let's come back to the the pandemic, the baby bust during the pandemic, which continues into twenty twenty one. Do now that we're coming to the end of the pandemic and here at least here in the United States, we have a majority of people who've been vaccinated when do you expect to see our birth rate go back to its normal levels, albeit in long-term decline, but in its normal range? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I don't, it depends on what you mean by normal. So I think that what, what you were sort of hinting at there is that the, what is likely to be normal is low. Yes. I think it's unlikely to expect to see, you know, maybe next year we'll, we'll rebound from the Two hundred thousand fewer births or whatever that are going to COVID-related, which is what we've been forecasting. Maybe there's a rebound to to eliminate that particular deficit, but births are still falling and are still low. There's really, to be quite honest, nothing in the data which which suggests to us that we can expect that to rebound. Mm-hmm. Like I said, mostly what it looks to me like is that we're joining the rest of the developed world into a, a steady state level of low fertility. Yeah. Now, it's, uh, on the subject of future growth, of course, China was famous for its one-child policy, which I guess was created in the 1960s and 1970s when China was faced with, with a, an exploding population and limited resources. Now, of course, China is a more wealthy country. They've had a generation or more of the one-child policy. I read just yesterday that China has now reversed that policy and that families, uh, married couples, will be, will be permitted to have up to three children. Are are you familiar with that that change in policy in China? Sure. I mean, I'm not an expert on um, you know, Chinese policy or, or economic activity for that matter, but I have I am aware that they backed away from the one-child policy, and that makes perfect sense. It's a, you know, an incredibly robust economy. That has that will have, like you said, the one-child policy is going to have those odd demographic effects that you described earlier about having a lot of older people and not so many younger people. That doesn't work really very well in a modern economy. 
so it's really not all that surprising that, that they'd like to see their birth rate go up and eliminating restrictions on having a child certainly is a, seems like a, a plausible way to do that. Yes. Do you see, for instance, here in the United States, what what sort of policies do you think the U.S. government could consider to boost the birth rate? So I think that's, you know, that's in some sense, well, I'll say, you know, this will date me, but that's the $64,000 question. <laughs> it's not obvious that we have good policy levers to pull. You know, as I sort of described a little bit earlier, despite the fact that I am an advocate for things like, you know, child care subsidies and parental leave policies, they probably aren't going to have much of an impact on fertility. And why, one of the reasons why I'm saying that is that other countries that have very generous child care policies and very generous leave policies have the same low fertility problem that we do. It seems much more like we're moving into an era where we're going to have to figure out ways to live with a lower level of, of fertility. Other countries, you know, we are not the first country, like I said, we're behind everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like other countries have just been ignoring the problem. They've noticed the problem too. Many countries have adopted what are called pronatalist policies. Pronatalist policy is a policy designed to help encourage childbearing. It's as simple as direct subsidies, for instance. Mm-hmm. The evidence on the effectiveness of those sorts of programs elsewhere isn't so great. It's not really all that difficult to influence the specific timing of, of fertility. So basically, if you institute a, a child, for instance, a bonus for having a child that's available this year, there'll be more births this year, but then fewer the next year. So you can definitely influence the timing of fertility. That's not really all that hard. Increasing the long-term number of births, the number of births that a woman has over her entire childbearing years, which is what you would need to actually increase the population growth rate long-term sustainable way. That's a really hard thing to do, and other countries have not been very successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. Using all of the sorts of things that, that we could, might think about doing here. It's possible that maybe it'll be more effective here, but the evidence is just not strong. So I think is the right way to interpret where we are is that like we may need to be in a position where our goal is to figure out how do we live essentially within our means. Mm-hmm. If for whatever reason there's this long-term decline in fertility, how do you fund a social security system when you don't have quite as many workers? Is, does that mean raising taxes, moving back retirement dates? cutting benefits like basically we've had long-term problems in social security for a long time do we you know restrict benefits for high income families like there's lots there's plenty of proposals out there mm-hmm. how to how to address funding shortfalls in social security maybe we need to think more seriously about those sorts of things mm-hmm. in terms of gdp growth population growth is not the only thing that increases gdp growth human capital investment is very important so you know, that's a fancy term that economists use for basically spending money on people. But improving our educational system and getting more people to go to college and, 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 and subsequent training programs that can increase the productivity of the workers that we already have. Mm-hmm. Those are other things that we can do to increase GDP. You know, instead of focusing just on, on raw numbers of people, maybe we, should, we could also focus on the skills of the people that we have. More realistically, I think that those are likely to be more successful interventions. Uh, Lee, Per worker productivity, per person productivity, is something that we've we've talked about for years. And you're right. Certainly, increased levels of technical training, of educational attainment, contributes to to the overall 
lifting of the boat, the lifting of the economic boat, as we're, we all collectively become a little bit wealthier. I guess one of the other safety valves, population safety valves that the United States has always enjoyed is, is immigration. I mean, we continue to be a very attractive destination for new immigrants, and we've encouraged new immigration. So I guess that's, but of course, immigration also comes with other questions and other issues. It's a politically charged issue in today's environment. But, but historically, increased immigration has always been a source of population growth in the United States. So I guess that could help us. I mean, in some sense, uh, you're right. I should, have, I should have incorporated that into my answer as well. The easiest supply of additional workers is immigration. And in some sense, it, you know, in a mechanical sense, better because you flip the switch and you have more workers today. If you, you know, spend a lot of time discussing, formulating, you know, fancy pronatalist policies designed to increase fertility, takes time to agree on the policies, implement the policies, then you got 20 years you got to wait after that. If increasing the size of the workforce is a goal, and sometimes if you think about it, like basically you're going to multiply the number of workers there are by their productivity, and that's how much stuff you get. Yes. So if you something increasing either of those two things, the number of workers or how productive those workers are, both lead to greater productivity, uh, greater output. The easiest way to increase the size of the labor force is to let more people in. You can do that tomorrow. As you highlighted, that is incredibly politically fraught, and our willingness to go down that path for a variety of social, political, whatever other reasons, makes that a very complicated solution. But like I said, in a mechanical sense, that's the easiest one. Well, I think the, the work that, uh, that you and your colleagues at Wellesley have done on this subject has been uh, very timely. It's been, it's critical work. It's, this is an issue which I think, this is an issue which affects us all. I'm glad that we've had this, the opportunity to do, today to discuss population trends, the pandemic baby bust, and the fact that you've been able to highlight the link between unemployment and a decline in the, in the birth rate. Phil, in the remaining few minutes left of our podcast, are there any additional thoughts that you'd like to leave with our, with our listeners? Because this is a key issue that, uh, that's going to affect all of us because all of us eventually are going to be dependent on retirement benefits, social security benefits, health benefits, and a growing, robust, skilled workforce which contributes taxes, pays taxes to pay for all of these programs, is in everyone's benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'd like to focus on are issues that we've already raised in the sense that I think where we likely are as a country, given that I find it unlikely that they're willing that we're willing to go down the, the immigration route, I think where we are as a country is trying to figure out how we live in a society where population growth is likely to be limited. Just like pretty much the entire rest of the developed world is experiencing. We are in now the same shift that everybody else has been in. And the solutions to these problems have a lot more to do with things like how do you invest in the people that you have than trying to figure out ways to get more people. And sometimes that's, that's a, a likely to be a more successful route to increase, uh, to increase growth. Well, I'd like to thank our guest Professor Philip Levine 
for being with us today and explaining how unemployment rates affect the birth rate and looking at some possible solutions out there. Once again, Phil, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. And for our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website at www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free to do so. And by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the 156 past episodes, read my blog, peruse my book, send me an email, or make a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.